0: You're listening to Past Imperfect. Please be advised that in this episode there are discussions of topics that some listeners may find upsetting.
1: Hello and welcome
2: to Past Imperfect. I'm Alice Thompson. And I'm Rachel Sylvester. And we're talking to exceptional people who've overcome adversity in their early years to achieve great success.
1: Our guest today is a politician who was born in 1967 in Baghdad to Iraqi Kurdish parents. He and his family fled to the UK during Saddam Hussein's early years in power.
2: He attended private schools, then his family lost all their money and found themselves again penniless
1: and on benefits. But he says his education saved him. He became a businessman, founded UGov, the market research company, from his garden shed and amassed a fortune worth more than 50 million.
2: He was elected as MP for Stratford-upon-Avon and served as Minister for Vaccine Procurement during the Covid pandemic. Now he's Education Secretary, in charge of helping the Covid generation catch up. I must be one of the luckiest human beings on earth, he says, when he thinks about his childhood.
1: Nadeem Sahawi, thank you very much for joining us on Past Imperfect. You say that in Iraq it's commonplace for lives to be turned upside down overnight, but you could never have thought that one day you'd be sitting round the cabinet table in Downing Street.
3: You're right. It would probably the furthest thing away from... Uh, my mind. The bit that I do remember is when, in 1979, so we arrived in 78 to the United Kingdom, and in 79 Margaret Thatcher became Prime Minister. And I remember my mother saying that a grocer's daughter has just become Prime Minister in this great country, this incredible country. And to, to her, it was a symbol that you know you can do anything in this country if you work hard and you focus on education my mother was a dentist in iraq and so she and all her brothers did the sciences and they were sort of you know, doctors and chemists and, and and she was a dentist and that is a memory that that that, that i have but i had n- no interest zero interest in 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 politics as i was young I, my interest was only Sort of ignited was when I got to university and I arrived at the University of London Union. I was accepted at University College London, which was across the road the, at in Torrington Place. And there was a man handing out the Socialist Workers' Party magazine outside ULU, the University of London Union. And I, I promised you, all I did was I sort of politely declined his offer of taking one of his magazines, at which point he got so aggressive. <laughs> he decided he was going to beat me up, and I was—I I was, oh was much smaller. I was—I was quite a thin student at uni compared to my size today. But nevertheless, it, that really upset me, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to go and find out what the other side, side thing. And it was sort of fresher's fair, and I—I I think it was called the Conservative Collegiate at UCL at the time. And I went and found out, and and I joined, and so that was my my sort of first real interest or interaction with with political parties
2: and your point. father was an entrepreneur wasn't he do you think you inherited that kind of entrepreneurial streak or even risk taking or
3: I think so I think in, in many ways the combination of being of immigrant stock where the of, of having to escape a country like Iraq Saddam's regime was very much modelled on the East German model so the the bath party their security apparatus was sort of the stasi type apparatus they, they trained them they they, they, they were work very closely with the East Germans and I guess when you've had that sort of near-death experience your your perception of risk and your evaluation of risk is is, is, is very different although I have to say it's great to see you know, My sort of nephews and nieces and the younger generation now actually much more open to having several careers and being open to joining startups or starting up their own businesses. I certainly feel there's a a sort of cultural shift in our uh, country. As actually, I discovered when I went back to UCL, I did a a, a sort of couple of lectures for them on enterprise when I was still at, at, at YouGov with students who were about to graduate or were doing postgrad work who were thinking about setting up their own either spin-outs or ideas in, in, in business. And so that's good to see as well. But uh, yeah, I suspect it, 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 it's partly because you know, it, it was something that, that uh, I felt I could do.
1: We want to take you back to your childhood. What can you remember about Baghdad? Is it the smells or the sights or your Iraqi cousins or family?
3: The smell that you remember, and I have to say, it is is a sort of unique, and in many ways quite a warm smell. Is the smell of water on uh, dust, dusty bits of bits of ground, dusty lawn, or because the temperatures in in, in Iraq get very warm in the summer, uh, and Actually, that that smell I'll never forget is is just sort of you know, trying to keep the you know, the, 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 the plants healthy. Is you know, going out with with my father, and and when you put water on, on 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 dust, it has a very very particular smell, and that is is one that that you know, is unique, I think, in many ways.
2: And did you have a sense of it being a dangerous place or tensions rising?
3: Yes. So in um, Saddam's era, and in many ways we were, we were lucky because we, we, we sort of got out just as he was beginning to really grip you know, all the sort of institutions within the system. It's a one-party state. You had to belong to the Baath Party, and if you didn't, as my father refused to, then you were marked anyway. But if you wanted to work in the public sector, which is pretty much almost every institution... But if, if you're a teacher, you had to belong to the bath party. And one of the things that was a sort of normal practice is teachers would ask you in class in the morning, you know, what did you discuss over dinner with your parents the night before? And so we were sort of drilled before we go to school never to talk about what we talk about at home and inside again. the house. And, and And sort of parents, my parents, had to almost... Be careful what they say to us because, you know, when you are you know, 10 years old, you're curious. Why, you know, why can't mm. I talk about that? And they sort of make, make it up all sorts of reasons why you know, it's much better to be private. It's much better not to say things, much better just to listen, you know, keep quiet, keep your head down. It, it was that sort of atmosphere in the country and it sort of you know, progressively got worse mm. uh, over time.
1: Were you ever really frightened? Was there a moment when you realised that your parents could be under threat?
3: Yes. So when we, we had a, a, a relative who warned my father that somebody had written a report about him to the secret police, and that they were going to come for him. And he literally had to leave the next day. He was very fortunate in many ways because he had, because he was an entrepreneur, he represented a number of, of businesses from the UK. That in itself put you at risk anyway because they can actually, in, in Saddam's Iraq, you can be executed for working for a foreign company, for you know, being a what they call the commission agent for a, a foreign company. And that night was pretty traumatic because he made a decision to leave in the morning, the next morning, and at school the next, about a week later, because it's a pretty small, you know, uh, close society, the word spread, and you know, when you have other children saying to you, you know, "Your father is a criminal," or "Your father is being hunted down and will be brought back," it, it, it's pretty frightening. Yeah. Um, and
2: so, how long he, was it before you then left?
3: About six months. Right. And, and uh, do you remember the day of, you end left? End of seventy-seven. Mm. We we left about six months after that with mm. my mother, and joined him. But it was it was the mo- the day the night. The, The he was I think he left in December, of seventy. I never we went to the airport. So he told the office that he was going up north, where they had a project out of Baghdad by car as a decoy, and we went to the airport instead, Baghdad International Airport, and he um, boarded a Swiss Air flight. And it, it felt like an age before the the flight actually took off from. Baghdad I remember it vividly because in Baghdad International Airport they they have a, a sort of a a, a a viewing platform in in the 70s and the plane was still um, on the tarmac when a, a truck full of soldiers actually um, sped up to the plane we were convinced that they were going to bring my oh. father out which was a sort of it was a something that, that wasn't unusual in, in yeah. Saddam's Iraq and it, That was the moment of total fear. Mm. Uh, And then minutes later, they brought a different man out. And we later learned from my father, because there was no mobile phones in those days, Mm. uh, but when he arrived to safety in England, we learned that they took the guy sitting behind him, (gasps) literally. By mistake? Uh, We don't know to this day.
2: Do you know what happened to that guy? We don't know,
3: I mean, sadly. But it's... um, it was pretty uh, difficult but the hardest bit was also losing friends because some people just wouldn't talk to you who I thought were my friends at school right. um, and when you're sort of you know, 10, 11 years old you've sort of formed relationships and, 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 and friendships and obviously their parents would have said to them don't talk to Nadim because you know his father's clearly got you know, yeah. a, a problem and being hunted
1: Can you actually remember the day that you left? Was it with the whole family?
3: Just with my sister and my mother and we just I mean, basically, my my mother tried to sell everything that she could sell and 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 pack up and 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 get to 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 England. Um, what did you take with you? What did we take with me? Some warm clothes, <laughs> um, because we knew it's much colder. And my dad, my father, actually wrote a message on the wall, just with his sort of name and the date, and that this is, this was his his home, and that one day he you know he may return, sort of thing. That I remember. I remember arriving and sort of feeling worried that you know I'm in a place where I don't know anyone and I don't know what's going to happen next or where am I going to go to school and all the things that children worry about and I've left some you know, friends behind who I you know, really didn't want to leave behind so you you, you, you feel vulnerable.
2: Mm. Did you feel welcomed?
3: Not in the first few weeks. It was pretty because the the. the the first memory of feeling uh, quite you know, scared and upset was my parents put me at Holland Park School, and uh, in those days it really you know, wasn't a, a, a high-performing school as it uh, later became. I think not being able to speak the language made life really difficult. And then, you know, my sort of memory of you know, three bigger boys, you know, chasing me around Holland Park because they thought it was a fun sport to sort of chase this this little guy around. And they caught me and they me in the pond head oh. head first. That was and and you know I went home as did my sister because she got into a a, a, a and a girl hit her at school a much bigger girl and and we then both went home crying saying. You know, what have you done? <laughs> what have you brought us to this place? You know, we had friends, we had a life, everything mm. was was stable, but it got better. You know, as I started to learn to read the language, and obviously speak, uh, and then think in the language, that's when I you know, began to to really uh, do well. And obviously, you very quickly make new friendships and. You fall in love with football and (laughs) all the great things this this country has uh, to offer, and the great education I had as well.
1: And what was the difference with schools in Iraq and then England? Was there a big difference? Did you feel, or
3: Um, was it
1: different? I mean, the language obviously was a huge barrier, but once you'd overcome that,
3: once I overcame the language barrier, I actually was able then to demonstrate that I was. I quite even in Iraq when I was sort of ten years old, I was quite good at. Uh, STEM subjects we call them, you know, maths. I was good at. So once I learned to to speak the language, I can demonstrate that I was quite good at, at maths and chemistry and biology and biology, which I loved doing. And actually, you know, it, it, it was pretty similar in 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 that sense. What I really sort of enjoyed is the the a lot of sort of the extracurricular activities and the stuff that, that, that schools here do so well. That, that was really good. And then, of course, you know, actually having a um, university sector here, which the whole world knows is world-class, especially immigrants, and having the opportunity to go to university was, was something that I think um, you know, was, was you know, really positive and unique.
1: When you were at school and you were bullied, do you think it was racism or do you think it was just being an outsider or different or.
3: Probably Um, a bit of both. So when I was. We moved from Holland Park to Sheen Comprehensive, and I remember there getting in a fight. I was called a Paki, and I was trying to explain, look, I'm not from Pakistan mm -hmm. if that's what you mean. I'm from. I'm Kurdish from Iraq. Nobody knew what. In the early 80s, no one knew what Kurds were. It was only until. I think um, 1988 when Saddam Hussein gassed the Kurds, if you remember, in mm. Halepcha as a sort of response to you know, what he accused them of of, of of sort of insurrection, that people began to understand that there's, there are people who are a minority who are being persecuted. Um, and so there's a bit of racism, a bit of being different. I remember music you know I, I i used to love the music of uh, a, a, a band called madness <laughs> um and, and then and i continue to love their music mm. to this day but if you remember in in those days we had skinheads and and you know there was a sort of a a, a racist angle mm. to some of this yeah. stuff but you just dealt with it and and actually when i reflect on my life you know i i think every um nation has to go through you know, different periods of, of, of how they deal with you know, whether it's immigration or whatever social issues but I, I certainly believe that actually this country is in many ways wonderfully colorblind. You, know, you look at my constituency today uh, Stratford-on-Avon is you know, 96 97% white affluent middle class they vote for someone called Nadim Zahawi as their member of parliament. And they've genuinely welcomed me. And I feel very much as the... I, I still refer myself to myself as the adopted son of Stratford because <laughs> Stratfordians are very, very proud people. and if, you, know, you have to be there for at least half a century <laughs> before you can claim to be this, you
1: know, and
2: a to true
3: Judea. Stratfordian, and <laughs> of course.
2: And did you ever stand up to the bullies or take on the racists or challenge what they were saying as a child?
3: Yes, and I got into fights, um, which was always made my mother very upset. Mm. Um, she didn't want me getting into, into into fights. In fact, one of the fights I, I broke my knuckles. <laughs> my knuckles don't exist on this side compared to that side, but and she was really upset. But um, you know, on the whole, actually most of my they, they were these were sort of very infrequent events, and and. You know, most of my memories are really good of, of meeting really good people, incredible role models, in, incredible friends and teachers who just wanted to help. And the moment I have worked out that actually, if I communicate what my hopes, fears, you know, aspirations are, there are so many people in this country who want to help you, who want to give you that that sort of you know that leg up, which is you know, truly remarkable. I just feel like every morning I wake up and I sort of think. I have to pinch myself to think, you know, how did this happen?
1: And then when you were 18, your father decided to invest everything he owned, including the family house in an American company. It was something called air knife, a machine that could use air to dig up roads. It sounded very risky, and it was, wasn't it?
3: It was um, hugely risky. It, it, it sounded like a wonderful thing. as an American company, and he went in and, and, and sort of lived there, and it would dig up the ground... Using supersonic air, and the idea behind it is that if it if it comes up to a um, non-porous material, because Earth is porous, then it would the air would just go around it. Ie, non-porous being pipes. So then it would protect pipes, and you don't get the accidents that you get in cities where, you know, when you're digging up, you could you could actually impact, you know, whether the power or or anything else. And he thought this thing was going to revolutionise the world, and you know, sort of literally. Gambled everything on this thing, and uh, and it failed, and and literally, we, you know, the banks took took everything, mm-hmm. and it was a pretty traumatic uh, time for us as a family. The only thing that they didn't take was a Vauxhall Senator car, right. that was in in my mother's name. And, but uh, did
2: you feel very responsible then for the families if you had to yeah, pick up?
3: Yeah, and this is where I say to you, when I say I pinch myself, you know, I you know for. A, you know a, a few days weeks i seriously considered not going to university and saying to my mum I'll, I'll the easiest thing to do is become a minicab driver mm. and i'll just use the car and, and you know we've got to survive but we've got to put some money on you know and food on the table mm, uh, and i'll i think about university maybe later in life and mm. my life could have gone in a very different direction uh, and insisted there's no way am i allowing you to do that, and you know, she she did everything and pawned her jewellery just to sort of make sure that I can go to university and you know didn't need to become a minicab driver.
1: And did your family have to go on benefits? Is that right? Did they because that must have changed your perception again, didn't it, of life in the state and how you get picked up in this country that there is a safety net.
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, certainly it, it you know when. You get to a place where you're having to you know whether claim benefits or you know, handouts from friends to just get through the week or the month it 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 does you know, bring to life you know what what life is like for you know people who are less fortunate than ourselves and and that's why you know. Everything I try and do today in education is about making sure that we deliver that opportunity for every child, wherever they are in the country. I was in in Stoke on Trent for Cabinet, and out of, I think, the three Stoke constituencies, there's only one outstanding school in that area. We have to do better than that. I don't believe children in Stoke are less talented than children in South Kensington. They just don't have the the schools and the, the, the teachers that feel well supported and, and are able to deliver those opportunities for them. So uh, it, it is not lost on, on, on me, you know, how difficult life can be when, um, you know, you have no income or, or low income.
2: And how much do you think that's to do with the teachers or the schools and how much is it to do with the family aspiration? <sighs>
3: I think that really great teachers will stretch every child to the maximum of their ability and will almost try and make sure that, that they don't allow their the, the, the child's circumstance to get in the way because we're all human beings and you can't help obviously feel upset or feel that you need to to help if a child's coming to school and they've had a terrible time at home um, for whatever reason. But actually the best thing you can do for that child is to give them the best education possible and stretch them to where their abilities can can take them. That I passionately believe in.
2: You're listening to Past Imperfect with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester, and our guest, Nadine Zahawi. There'll be more from us after this.
0: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank.
2: Welcome back to Past Imperfect with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester and our guest, Nadine Zahawi.
1: When your father went bankrupt, he must have been absolutely distraught because it must have been the second time that he really had to give up everything. Mm. What was that like for you? And did, did you then feel you had to take over the family?
3: It was really hard, really, really hard because you literally you don't know what to do because he literally would you know, lock himself up in, in, in a room and, and didn't want to you know you don't want to face the world what I admire about those that, that was about six months we were traumatic really hard but there was so much love at home and the determination that we, we were not going this thing is not going to pull us apart that he was able to then pick himself up, being the great adventurer that he is, he went to Lithuania, had some contacts there, and actually did remarkably well. <laughs> <laughs> built a, a giant business um, and did you know, incredible success at a you know, very late stage in life. Almost, you know, he, he's a hero, genuinely, uh, to be able to 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 to, to do that.
2: Um, uh, so, do you think it made you more determined to be self-reliant and to make your own fortune, just so, to having known how difficult things could be?
3: Um, I always thought that that you know one day I'll, I will you know, try and do something that you know I can make a real difference. But I had both. I worked for you know larger companies and and got that experience. But I always thought that one day, that that you know I might um, do something, and that was really you know, great. But I, you know, I, I also had a a, you know, a a failed business before, you know, being part of the team that that founded YouGov, and that was a painful lesson as well.
2: Um, Did you feel you should, in a way, it's good to fail? It's good to oh, learn from. Yes,
3: things. totally. I, I absolutely believe that. I think until you have lost money, it's very hard to understand how hard it is for entrepreneurs to actually create wealth to make money. Uh, And I think actually policymakers need to be really aware of of that and uh, celebrate and support wealth creation because actually those who create the wealth, I guarantee you would have lost lots of money before they got to a place where they actually made wealth and created businesses and built businesses and delivered, you know, thousands of jobs. I passionately believe that.
1: And after university, you met Geoffrey Archer, the writer and businessman. Um, and how did that happen? And did, did he change your career choices or your life in any way, do you think?
3: He was a an inspiration, um, you know, a human being who's able to sort of always see the positive side of life, would always be able to pick himself up. You know, I think he's been described as a sort of tiggerish uh, <laughs> character by others. He certainly is that. We met because he wanted to do something to help the Kurds when they were up in the mountains after Gulf War I, and he decided, to, with the Red Cross, and he deliberately didn't set up his own charity, he worked with the Red Cross, to help the Kurds and he did the Simple Truth concert and I met him through actually the the, the guys I was working with who knew him and, and actually helped with making the, 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 the T-shirts for the concert um, that, that he had planned at Wembley with the BBC and others. And then, one, he certainly encouraged me to, to do more in politics so I did much more, joined Wandsworth Council, became a councillor in Wandsworth in 1994. And I think one of his great gifts is identifying talent. He brought a group of us together who were all young members of the Conservative Party. If I tell you who was around that table, you well, you had Sajid Javid, Robert Halfon, Tobias Elwood, Priti Patel, Shailish Vara, myself, Adam Afriye, I think Kwasi Kwarteng, so, you look at the yeah. the you know, cabinet today case. or um, uh, the parliamentary party, we literally all were young members of the party who were activists. you know none of us knew we'd ever end up becoming members of parliament or indeed ministers, but um he brought us together when he wanted to run for mayor of london, and so we became the sort of the campaign team um and um you know, the 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 failure to, to, to become mayor of London meant I got to meet Stephen Shakespeare, who was also part of the uh, team, and that's how we ended up coming up with the idea of YouGov. So
2: how did you think of it?
3: It was a romantic <laughs> vision. We never thought... And, and I, this is what I said when I went back to UCL to do the Enterprise lecture. I opened my lecture by saying, you know, if you set up a, a, a business because you want to make money you'll probably fail. There is no correlation between your desire to make money and be rich and success. But if you set up a business because you're passionate about something, and whether it's Gates or Jobs or Zuckerberg, they set up business because they want to build the best software or the best machine or the best social network. So YouGov was a romantic idea of, you know, no taxation without representation, Boston Tea Party. So the initial plan was And this was, a, remember, a world, this is 2000, where mm-hmm. only 27% of the UK had internet mm. um, access on America online. And then you remember FreeSurf came along with this it was the world of portals. Then um, the idea is that you, you would log on and you would pay your council tax online through the YouGov platform. But more importantly than that, <clears throat> we would ask you your views as to how you want your money spent hence no taxation without representation mm-hmm. and so you, you know, whether it's the mayor of London as he would have been it came out of the campaign in uh-huh. fact or anyone else we very quickly worked out that to integrate with government legacy taxation systems was something that was way beyond our capability <laughs> or our, our funding, uh, we had you know, very little money uh, so uh, it was the, 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 the question asked you know, was, was the polling was the bit that really worked and um, that—that—that's how it came about.
1: And then he became an MP for Stratford-on-Avon. How did that happen? How did you get that seat?
3: So, in uh, two thousand and nine, end of uh, it, this was sort of financial crisis and crash. If you remember, I felt that, uh, you know, I was forty years old i think um, 43 years old i had already stood in um, 97 in Erith and Thamesmead as a parliamentary candidate i you know by then you know i i had you know, been bitten by the bug of politics and i wanted to be in parliament and i thought it was now and ever and i'd been chief executive for 10 years i had been a, you know, a, I think a good steward of the of the of the business and I said to Stefan that, you know, I'm thinking about doing this. And so succession planning was in place that, that I knew that he would be a great steward of, of, of the business as well. I decided that I will, you know, start to go for, for seats again. And I think the first seat I went for was in devices in Wiltshire. And I came second to Claire Perry. And I remember General Sir Mike Jackson was the sort of the... The interrogator or moderator of the night in the final of that. Then I got into the final in Suffolk Coastal and I came second to uh, the brilliant Therese Coffey, my wonderful friend and colleague in, in Parliament and in Cabinet. And then I got the call for Stratford to go up to Stratford. And I remember a friend of mine saying to me, You know, actually, I'm going to mention two friends. One said to me, You'll know when the seat is the right seat for you because you'll feel it in the room and the other one was was wonderful and a great friend of mine is Sajid Javid who said you know when he saw the result of Suffolk Coastal I'd lost again he said you know get up Stratford now you know, don't waste a moment I've seen you on the short list on in, in, in Stratford on Avon dust yourself off you know don't think about the loss focus on 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 winning Stratford on Avon which was wonderful advice. And so I went up Stratford, checked into the Shakespeare Hotel,
0: mm-hmm. and just
3: immersed myself in everything Stratford on Avon for about a week before the interview. And then I got to the final. And Matthew Paris actually did the the interrogation, the moderation in, in the final. And he wrote about it, I think, the, the next day. Um, and um, it, it, it is, in my view, the best seat in Parliament. Um, And
2: have you ever experienced racism in politics, either in the Conservative Party or at Westminster more generally?
3: It was a different party in the 80s, I think. Um, I remember my first application to get onto the approved list of candidates. I went for the interview and then I got a very polite letter back saying, "Um, you know, we don't think you are, you know, we don't think you're right for becoming a member of parliament. Which I was shocked at, mm. disappointed, heartbroken. And actually. And do you think that was racism? I don't know, but it was a very different party then. Mm. It was on a um, trajectory for improvement and opening up, which has been remarkable. I remember going to see Baroness Morris, Trish Morris, as she was then. And I showed her the letter and she literally just ripped it up and threw it in the bin mm. and said, ignore it. You will be interviewed again next week. You will make a great parliamentarian. I went back and I got on the list, and that's when I fought Irith and Tensby in '97. And I have to say, I think one of the great strengths of my party is the ability to reflect society, to, to, to very much um, move with the, with, with the times, um, to, to be a party you know, of its moment, of the people.
1: And have you ever been back to Iraq,
3: yeah, and do yeah. you go
1: now with your children or have you do you feel it's it's still part of you and part of your life?
3: No, in the sense that um I have you know friends there both in 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 kurdistan and, and of course in in Baghdad, and I try and wherever possible to no mainly you know people that I met. You know, most of the Iraqi opposition was in in England, um, <laughs> and so people I, I actually met in England who then went back, especially the Kurdish uh, opposition as well as the, the the whole of the Iraqi opposition, that went back post Saddam. I went back post Saddam, and it, you know, Kurdistan is a beautiful place. And if you haven't been, it's well worth going. The Kurds have a, 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 a saying that you know, the Kurds have no friends but the mountains, and they really are glorious mountains to see, but um, I think they're, you know, uh, they're on a path to um, a democracy, and it's early days. I keep reminding colleagues in parliament here, but also in, in Iraq, that if you had landed from outer space in this great country of ours, the United Kingdom, any time between Magna Carta and 1928, you would have concluded that this democracy was still um, on a path, uh, on a developing path, because it was only in 1928 that women got the vote. Um, that string of time between Magna Carta and 1928 is 713 years. And I think sometimes you know we want to see progress in our own lifetime, which is why we get frustrated when you know, we see Iraq post Saddam, you know, not working out the way you know, we'd imagined it would work out. But you know, it's taken us hundreds of years to to, to establish a you know, really robust, healthy democracy here. It won't take them 700 years, but it might take you know 50 years or longer to do this. Um, and they're deserving of our support.
2: And what do you feel when you see people coming over on small boats across the Channel, desperate to get to this country? Do you feel that there's enough compassion for for people who are coming? Do you ever think that could have been you?
3: So I I think that the compassion in this country is um, enormous. And I tell you for why, you know, you look at how, um, we've uh, welcomed, you know, whether it be the the uh, Hong Kong um, uh, uh, immigrants that are coming uh, to the UK, um, or the um, uh, Afghanistan um, uh, refugees coming to the UK, or indeed um, those seeking refuge from other parts of the world. You know, we uh, have always, I think, been a welcoming uh, country the real issue with the boats coming across is those people are putting their lives in danger and in the hands of criminals. Um, and I think that's wrong. Um, I think that you know, if they have um, a legitimate reason to, to want to be in the UK, family reunion, whatever it is, they can apply and, and actually we have a pretty good system that can um, uh, deal with that. Um, but they're in a safe country in France, um, and I just think that we need to make sure the system helps those who are legitimately in need, um, which is why we've got to deal with this illegal route uh, 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 for the these you know, uh, crossings. So I, I think, actually... Um, in in many ways, what we did during the Syria conflict, um, you know, was to essentially flex the system to help uh, the most EU, and we said we will take you know women and children, um, and then try and support those in the camps in Jordan and in the Lebanon and uh, uh, elsewhere um, uh, through. the the, the syria conflict uh i I just think you know it's right to be able to 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 act on the illegal high risk um uh uh, crossings that we need to to, to stop because actually um those people are being exploited Um,
1: do you think rwanda though is the right place if you say take your dad on his flight Mm. here do you think that, actually, it was such a huge effort to get here and it was so emotionally traumatic, should we be then sending them on to another country or should we try and accommodate them here and, and, and sort out the issues here and maybe then then look at where you send them or...
3: So the, I mean, I guess the, the big difference is my father was escaping a despot and this was the first safe country right. um, that uh, he arrived at and then went through the... Uh, 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 process Um, I think in many ways what uh, Rwanda has been able to do is pretty remarkable um, in the sense that it it is you know has become a a sort of a real beacon of hope for um, economic development and you know integration of, of, of of, of different um uh, migrants into that society um and so i think actually um what the home secretary what Pretty's done with um the rwandan uh, government will prove to be a positive outcome um you see what they're doing for those um people who are arriving in rwanda not just from the united kingdom um, uh, but from elsewhere uh, in the world, um, I think they're, they're building a beacon of hope in Africa um, uh, as, as a country. Um, uh, and I think it, it's a problem that many other nations are having to grapple with. Um, I think Denmark are, are looking at um, a, a similar sort of relationship with, with Rwanda. Um, so I, 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 I genuinely feel that, that it will, I hope, Send a clear message to the um, you know, those being exploited to just pause and think. Okay, you know, I shouldn't be going through this illegal, really dangerous um, route to try and um, uh, get the UK because it's not going to work.
2: And how much do you think Britain's meritocratic enough? Do you why do you think we have this obsession with private schools and class? Do you feel that there's more to be done on that?
3: I mean I don't think we have an obsession I genuinely don't believe that I think most parents uh, will feel that um, you know independent schools have have, have a, a um, role to play in the overall education ecosystem um, and I think actually I see them as, as joining us in this journey to help those children that are most in need of that great education those children in you know, disadvantaged households and disadvantaged parts of the country. Um, I also think that actually you don't really level up by pulling other people down. You know, I would rather sort of take them on and be as good as the independent schools um, and say to them, look, you know, you can do more. If you if you look at what you know, Eton's and of the Star Academies with um, Uh, the sixth form colleges um, uh, that they are launching in the Midlands and Oldham and and the North Um, or what um, uh, King Edward's school foundation is doing in Birmingham which was doing it even before then Um, I think there's an opportunity for us imagine a world where we have um, you know a thousand uh, academies in those um, areas where we really want to level up um the you know fifty odd education investment areas that we want to transform the educational outcomes for, that are a true partnership between our independent schools and the state sector. Um I think that's actually a healthy ecosystem. It's it's you know it's good for the um system to, to have the you know, the DNA of grammar schools, the DNA of, of our you know, Church of England schools, Catholic schools, um, Muslim schools, and of course our our high performing multi academy trust. Um, if we all agree that you know our priority has to be that you know I, I we've been talking about my life, the eleven year old who came here without a word of English, that we want to deliver a great education for every child, at, you know, whatever their postcode, whether their parents have the wherewithal or have no parents. Um, uh, or parents who don't have the wherewithal, then we can all join this journey. Um, like I did on, on vaccine. You know, the vaccine was a true collaboration of great public institutions. The NHS was the backbone of the vaccination programme with local government, but also with the private sector. You know, the uh, what I call my pizza boxes, the vaccine that went out to the front line to the vaccinators, to primary care networks, was delivered by DHL. The back end, we brought in Boots and Superdrugs distribution arm. The technology was built for us by Palantir it was a true collaboration of good capitalism the manufacturers the, you know, Pfizer and AstraZeneca and really good public service to deliver you know, and save lives and I think we can do the same in education
1: Um, What would you like to say to yourself aged 11 when you just came over here and you'd gone to Holland Park and you started that first day and already got into a fight
3: You're the luckiest kid on this earth.
1: Nadine Zahawi,
2: thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you. Thank you.
1: You've been listening to Past and Perfect with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester and our guest this week, Nadine Zahawi. The producer was Anya Pierce, and the series producer is Ben Mitchell. Listen back to all our
2: previous episodes on the Free Times Radio app or download them from wherever else you get your
1: podcasts. If you enjoyed what you heard, why not pick up a copy of our book, What I Wish I'd Known When I Was Young, which features insights from our interviews with guests such as Richard Branson, Tom Daly, and Daphne Park. We'll be back with more Past Imperfect next week.
0: Thank you for listening to Past Imperfect. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode or others in the series, please go to our podcast page or website, where there are links to charities and organisations who are there to help.